history of Ireland. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you here tonight for the third interview in the Inspiration Proclamation series. The National Library has had a wonderful year-long uh, programme of events and exhibitions for 1916. Um, we've had more than 100,000 visitors. We digitised the seven signatories' papers and published them uh, for people to access across the world. And we also captured the memory, the contemporary memory of 2016 through our web archiving, carving and ephemera collection. But it is through this series, this flagship series, that we really wanted to facilitate a very reflective discussion about the proclamation and its relevance to modern Ireland. So I'm very honoured to have Dr John Bowman and Roddy Doyle here tonight. I'm so happy to welcome Roddy, who's been such a generous friend and supporter to the National Library. We were very proud to have received the literary papers of this distinguished writer and the winner of the 1993 Man Booker Prize and many awards when Roddy donated them to the library in 2008. If I could ask you please to make sure that your phone is silent. Um, we're recording the interview for podcasts later and I hope you have noted the emergency exits there behind you. Um, I'm also delighted to give you some uh, news straight hot off the press. Both our speakers here tonight were nominated just yesterday for the shortlist at the Borgot Energy Irish Book Awards ceremony, which is brilliant. That's um, Roddy Doyle's Rover, The Big Fat Boy, nominated in the children book, children's book shortlist, and John Bowman's Ireland, the autobiography, nominated in the non-fiction book of the year award, and I know just recently launched. So it's my pleasure now to hand over the floor to John Bowman. John, as you will know, is a distinguished historian, a writer, and a broadcaster. John. <coughs> thank, thank you, Sandra. Um, and just before we begin, something I've said before all of these interviews, uh, this is not an opportunity to ask Roddy Doyle about his view of the musical, the commitments, or anything. <laughs> this is about the this is about 1916, and and we're confined. We're confining it to that, yeah. Um, and I should say, uh, well, first of all, you you know him so well, but Roddy Doyle is a novelist, dramatist, screenwriter. Um, He's the author of many novels for adults, at least eight books for children, seven plays and screenplays, dozens of short stories. Several of his books have been translated and several made into films, uh, beginning with The Commitments. He's also written for television and is now also the musical. And he was awarded, as Sandra said, the Booker Prize in 1993 for this novel, uh, Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha. And I had to borrow this yesterday <coughs> from my second son, A.B., whose copy this is. Um, and I can tell you uh, this has played quite a part in his life because A.B. was very, very fond of his mother. I mean, he probably still is, but she doesn't <laughs> always, she's not always that aware of it <laughs> nowadays. But he, he remained uh, at her breast for three whole years. He, he, she took three years before he would leave the, uh, the breastfeeding. And 13 years before, he was 13 when he stopped insisting that you read from every every night before he went to sleep. And this is the last book. <laughs> he, he wanted to finish this book. He wanted her to read it. So it's an important book in his life for that reason. Great. Um, and if I could begin by, by perhaps asking you, uh, Roddy, about your own memory of 1966 mm -hmm. and the 50th anniversary of The Rising. Because you've yeah. written a bit about this, um, and you remember your father pinning the proclamation, which is our topic, our text tonight, yeah, he on didn't, the wall. Yeah, he didn't just pin it to the wall, he actually framed it. He made the frame, and he put some sort of a varnish cover on the, uh, on the paper, or I'm not sure if it was paper. And it was, a, it was almost like a ceremonial event in the house, as I recall it, that uh, I was eight, and my brother was six, and my sisters would have been... 12, 14 and 12, I think. And uh, my mother was there as well, and it went up on the wall, but it wasn't just, you know, thrown up on the wall. It was kind of very carefully put up on the wall, if I remember, and it was a great uh, reverence for the words. It was right beside the their my parents' bedroom door, and it's still there. My father's dead, but my mother still lives there, and it's still there, and it still looks exactly the same as it did 50 years ago. 
But I also remember um, in school, I went to um, the National School in Rohini, and I was in the, the baby's version, Skolida. And I think it was Miss Morgan, her name was. Uh, well, I had a teacher called Miss Morgan, but I'm not 100% certain that it, that was her in that year. But I'm almost certain it was her. And she brought the proclamation in on a tea towel. And she pinned it to the blackboard. And um, we learned it, you know. Uh, there were boys and girls in the class in those early years before we were separated. And uh, I remember learning it off by heart. Hadn't a clue what it meant. Not an idea. But I remember hoping there was one, one boy or girl from each class was going to be chosen to read a chunk of it out loud in the school hall. And I remember hoping it would be me, and it wasn't. And but you compensated. I made up for it later. Yeah. yeah. No, but <laughs> I you still hate the guy that was chosen. I see. No, but, it, but that episode is, is in this book. Well, it's very fictionalized. Yeah. I read it again the first time I've read it since I, read, since I wrote the book. Um, and luckily, you told me what page it was on, so it saved me the bother of finding it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was entirely, you know, the, the episode was there in my head, like a lot of the episodes in, that inspired uh, the structure of that book, really. But um, I made up the rest, so to speak. The marching is all made up, is it all that stuff? Yes. There were, there were times when there was a teacher who made us march to wake us up. So I just made it, I made her, made us, or made the boys march at the same time that they were supposed to be reciting the proclamation, it's a, which is very hard, actually. <laughs> and um, the invention of, because coincidentally or happily, it wasn't part of a master plan, but I'd given the kid the name Paddy Clark, the narrator of the, of the novel, his name was Paddy Clark. And then when I got round, I was listing off things I could recall from school days and stuff that might spark a chapter or a, a piece of a chapter. And um, happily, one of the signatories was Thomas Clark. So I decided to use that. And uh, so Paddy claims, uh, he whispers it to a guy beside him or behind him that Thomas Clark was his granda, you know. And then very helpfully, that guy puts his hand up and says, you know, Miss Watkins, Miss Paddy Clark says, the man on the tea towel is his granda. And Pearl Paddy gets caught, and he gets uh, three of the best in each hand for it. But, but, he he, but he still tells the teacher that when she challenges him, yes, oh, yeah. it is. And he lives, where does he live? Clontarf. Clontarf, yeah. <laughs> and then she, she brings, does she bring you up? And, and uh, I keep thinking it's you. you it is, yeah, of course. Yeah. So you, I'm yeah. falling into it as well now. It's <laughs> not, it's a, a fictional character. Fictional character, okay. But he's brought up anyway, and, he, and the teacher invites him to say, well, what's under Clark's name? And it says, executed, May 1916. What does executed mean? And one of the kids says, kilt. Kilt, K-I-L-T. Yeah, kilt. It spells kilt. So yeah. then, then you have to own up that you've been he owns fibbing up. up. He, he owns up, up. right. Yeah. Okay. Because it couldn't have happened, because my name wasn't Clark. Yeah. And there was no Doyle. No, no, there were a few Doyles who were keen to sign this, uh, but they, when they read it, they weren't happy with the quality of the writing. <laughs> so, they so they wouldn't put their name to it. Yeah. Right. So what do you remember, though, of that whole, uh, when you were eight, and aside from your father's uh, pinning up the proclamation at home, what was the business in school, and was, did you all go to the Croke Park pageant, or was that a big deal, or what? Didn't go to Croke Park, no. Um, it was a huge deal. It was very much good versus bad. Um, I remember watching Insurrection, and um, playing the following day, playing in the schoolyard, and when we got home, playing insurrection. And we were the Irish, and there were no, <laughs> nobody volunteering to be the English, so to speak. And I remember, very unlike cowboys and Indians, where you would always have a few lads who quite, were quite happy being the Indians, you know. Uh, but there was nobody, so we, we were fighting nobody, really. It was an, an abstract battle in a way. It was quite modern in a way, because you never see the enemy these days. And it's the same, we never saw the enemy, but it was very much us versus them, good versus bad. And um, that was the way it was presented in school, in a way, really. Very cheerfully, I've got to say. There was no hatred being expressed. It was quite cheerful. But uh, it was a very simple picture. I remember also, there was, I can't remember how many episodes of Insurrection there were. There were six or seven, yeah. No, sorry, there were seven or eight. Yeah. Because it was eight? Yes, okay, yeah. thanks for that. It was televised as half-hour programmes, as yeah. if it was a tele... As if yeah, it was brilliant. Ray McAnally was the yeah. anchor in modern dress, and yeah. the rest was all... So yeah. we now go over to the GPO and see what happened yeah. to, there today. I had no concept of the idea that it would end. 
you know, because I remember watching The Virginian, and it went on for years, as far as I remember, <laughs> once a week. And this was, the, the insurrection was The Virginian in Ireland. And I remember it, coming in to watch it one, one evening, and instead of insurrection, there were men in a studio talking about insurrection, men with pipes. And um, I was devastated. It was over. You know, my father told me, no, it's over. And I was devastated, because I remember it was, it was just, and I wasn't the only one. Every, I think anybody my age would recall it. I remember um, quite recently, uh, I, I still am very close to two men I grew up with, and were the exact same age, and went to the same schools, and uh, suffered the same silliness from Christian brothers and all the rest of it. And um, they, re they recall it in the exact same way. You know, it was very, I think, quite important, really. And then when you went to the Christian Brothers School and you were learning about Irish history, what, what did you learn about 1916? Not a lot, as far as I recall. I, do, um, I, went, I, I changed from primary to secondary in 1971, and I went from a national school to the Christian Brothers. And I was a culture shock. The phrase didn't exist back then, I'm sure, but it was a culture shock. But there was a subject called civics, and the Christian Brother teaching civics our reading was the Unfublocked and the United Irishman. Um, <laughs> he had an each way bet on the provost yeah, of the stickies. Split, in other words, I yeah. didn't know about the split then, yeah. but it was quite recent, wasn't it? He yeah. wasn't sure which, um, which way he was going. And it was around about, I think, I was in first year when Bloody Sunday occurred, and then you know there was internment and all the rest. It was, it was, it was as if the Vietnam War, which was a big topic on the news when I was a very small child, it was as if the Vietnam War somehow had come to Ireland, if that makes sense. That the drama, the flames, the, you know, the, 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 talk, the clock ticking over everything was in Ireland at that stage. And if I remember, and I'm, I did history right through to the Leaving Cert, but I think Irish history disappeared off the syllabus, syllabus almost. I don't think I did Irish history for the Leaving Cert. It was, I do recall European history, Napoleon, World War II, etc. And I remember the teacher, he was the only teacher I would have thought was any good, actually, the history teacher. But I don't remember doing Irish history at all. I have a feeling it wasn't there. It, 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 because life had become so complicated. Well, also, the, well, the Civil War w was not covered for very many years. So mm. whether it was covered and then dropped for reasons, of, for northern reasons, I mm. don't know. Mm. Um, but you, you also then included 1916 much more extensively in a later, in a later novel, A Star Called Henry, because it, yes. it's a very substantial uh, section of that book, yeah. isn't it? Section two, yeah. Very deliberately, I decided to... Now, he's the narrator of his own story, so he's an unreliable witness, I suppose. But I just I remember figuring out what age can I make the narrator so that it's just about feasible that he's in the GPO in 1916. So before I put a word to paper, before I gave him a name even, I was figuring out how to make it possible for him to be in the GPO. And gradually then the book grew out of that, became more, and it took a while before he got to the GPO, and then it went on for quite a considerable time afterwards. But at, at the very beginning, all I wanted to do was get this larger-than-life chancer, in a way, into the GPO and have a bit of fun with it in some ways. Tell That's, a story, yeah. but have a bit of fun with it. Poke at a lot of pieties and, you know, upset a few people. <laughs> <laughs> and he, if I remember, because I, I just re read it this afternoon, and I did, I was looking at earlier drafts of it in, with, in your papers yesterday in, in the manuscripts department, and, and one can see how you're making changes and how you, I can't pretend that just going through very quickly the, the drafts, because there are five drafts of that particular book mm -hmm. in the manuscripts. So some young American PhD student can oh. come in and spend three or four years doing it at some stage, but see the growth of the... Leave me alone, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, it's, he's, am I right in saying he is as young as 14 and as tall as six foot two? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And he's in the GPO. According to himself. According to himself. Yeah. Yeah. And so he then, <clears throat> he, you bring Connolly, you bring Collins in. Now, Collins is a minor figure in the GPO, but he was there. Yeah, he becomes a major figure later on yeah. in the story. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. there. And given that when you go into the GPO, I mean, it's not that big a room. 
and there were a lot of people in the room, so they were rubbing shoulders with each other, it has to be in the case. And Collins would have been, even then, a very, very young man, but he would have been, he would have, what would you say, commanded attention, I would imagine, that it, it, it was, would have been impossible for me to decide, no, I'll bring him in later. So he's there, and I planted them there. And even later on, when Collins is being brought with, with hundreds of other men, being, uh, I suppose, marched along the quays and onto cattle boats to bring them to the camps in uh, Wales and England, that Henry is there watching it happen and Collins kind of winks at him. So that's the, the kind of the joy or the glee of mixing fiction with history, that you can do that type of thing, that you can have a fictional character look at a, a real character and the real character winks at him. It's a blank <laughs> check, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you take you, you, you recount uh, in the book because uh, the proclamation declares, this is part from the, your own text, page 96, the proclamation declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and all its parts, cherishing all the children of the nation equally. Now, there's a dispute about, about that. You're taking the view that this is literally the children of the nation, mm -hmm. but it is more generally presumed now to be the, a reference to the Ulster Unionists, that they too will be in the Irish uh -huh. system yeah. and cherished. Yeah. Well, I took a literal meaning of the word children, or at least I'd wanted my character, Henry, to take a literal meaning. And he, uh, he's a child of the streets, really. And the only time, the only stability he had, in a way, was his devotion to his brother. Everything else about his family life fell apart, you know? Uh, but he devo he's devoted to his younger brother, and his younger brother dies under tarpaulin on Grand Canal Dock, I think it is. And uh, Henry eventually finds his way into Liberty Hall. And James Connolly gives him a thump one day when he hears Henry saying that he doesn't need to read. And Connolly sits him down and says it's gibberish at the moment, but you will learn to read and teaches him how to read. And then I just thought, you know, it'd be nice to just get Henry to plant a little bit of the proclamation. So Connolly shows it to him the night before the rising, because there were a lot of people staying in, the, in Liberty Hall that night. And it's just, you know, it's a brand new document. And I think Connolly and Pierce were largely responsible for it. And Connolly says to Henry, what do you think? And Henry says, well, it's the business, you know, but there's, could you put in something about children, you know? So Connolly does it there and then. And again, I was, um, I suppose it could be seen as a bit sentimental, but, you know, I think it's a, it'll always be a raw moment in his life where he loses his brother. So somehow or other, if he's going to go into the GPO, he fully expects to die, but I think he's been quite romantic when he says this, fully expects to die, hopes to die, that it will be for something more than a flag. He also nicks a few bob from the GPO. He does. In he's case ever, he doesn't die. Ever the In case the worst, in yeah. fact, as you say, in case the worst comes and he doesn't die. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> ever the pragmatist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you're approaching some subject of this kind, uh, do you feel, what duty do you feel to the reader? Let's for a moment think of the non-Irish reader uh, who doesn't know the story, mm -hmm. or it's just, they know it's a novel, so mm -hmm. you know no duties to them perhaps, is that it? None, no, just clarity, I suppose. But I think if he starts becoming a historian, if he starts giving it too much context, it becomes bad prose, or bad fiction, shall we say, not bad prose, but bad fiction, and I think you know, I've read novels set in the American Civil War, I've read novels set in the Second World War in various parts, and I'm losing a lot, I know. And, I, and, you know, some of the names aren't familiar to me, some of the places aren't familiar to me, and I suppose these days particularly it's just a, a few clicks away from finding out a bit, but I'm happy to roll with that, I'm happy to go with that. And I'd, I'd imagine people who read, like reading fiction would be the same. If the story is reasonably clear, and that's why there were five drafts, actually, to make sure the story was reasonably clear. I don't really, it's not that I don't care, that sounds irresponsible or that sounds um, childish almost. It's that I don't think it's necessary to load the novel with, if you like, historical padding. And I don't, by padding, I'm talking about good history really, but in terms of a novel, it could be 
bad fiction. But you're also hoping, of course, in the fiction to capture a truth about that period, I mean, which, yeah. which may not be in, in the historical record, but which is still a truth yes, and an insight. And it, it's yeah. extraordinarily, you know, when you're sitting there, it, it, when I was writing it, it's extraordinary how much detail there is, you know, hour by hour detail, some of it quite contradictory, but the photographs and, for example, when the looting started, you know, it's a novelist's dream when you read what people were carrying down Sackville Street, what they were robbing. You know, we tend to think now it would be laptops and, you know, runners and kind of three or four very predictable things. But the array of stuff that were, were being rolled and carried down, like pianos and boas and, you know, fireworks and glorious stuff was being carried down. And it's wonderful. I mean, um, so that and descriptions, people who were in the GPO itself, the descriptions of the destruction of the GPO, the noise and the heat and the danger, because a lot of the stored ammunition was down, and the lift shaft was being, you know, gathering heat more and more intensely, and the dome, the last dome started to melt, to melt, which I find almost unimaginable, because I've never seen glass melt, and uh, it's just so vivid that it's, you know, when you're a novelist, it's wonderful to be in there, and I thought, well, it was only five or six days, I'll get out the other side of this in a, you know, in a couple of months, but, you know, because it was so vivid, I was in there, so to speak, forever, because you keep reading these great little details, but you think, oh yeah, food. There were people in the basement making food, and it was coming and going, and you know, not much happened at first. And it was all rumor and counter-rumor, and the country had risen, the country hadn't risen, the Germans were marching towards them, you know. And in this, uh, and again, um, we tend to forget that there was a time when phones weren't there and when information wasn't there and radio wasn't there and it was all like they were so isolated. It's, it, you know, as a story, it's brilliant. And you obviously did use many of the books the, the, which chronicled that week. I mean, mm. you, that's one of the things you would do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the great things about this year is that there's so many new books, and I read some of them. I had, I had half decided to myself, no, I won't go near them. I did that, and I, you know. But, but luckily, I changed my mind, and I, well, I couldn't resist, and I read a few. And if I was writing the novel today, I'd be adding a few ingredients that weren't there before. Uh, the amount of uh, um, there's a, a memoir by a man called Joe Good, who was actually English. He was born in Soho. I think his grandparents might have been Irish. But he came across to take part, and him and a, a large contingent of either English men from Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, London, or Irish men who had been living in London and these other cities and had come out of England to avoid conscription for one, for one reason, and then also to take part in the rising. Collins being a case in point, because he worked for the Postal Service right, the, yeah. over there. London, yeah. And they were all congregated. There were, there was a couple of hundred of them, I think, out in uh, Plunkett's estate in um, where was it? Forgotten now. Kimmage. 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 Yeah. And they all came in on Easter Monday. There was a tram load of them came in, and so a lot of these men were English. And how many people were in the GPO? A couple of hundred. And there might have been a quarter of them were English, strictly speaking, the English accents. The best named of them was a man called Blimey O'Connor. <laughs> he was, you know, got the nickname because of his accent, which is brilliant, isn't it? Mm. So I would add that if I was doing the novel again now, because I wasn't aware of it, you know. Mm. And um, I think to a degree I captured the eccentricity of some of the leaders in their dress sense and things like that. But I think after reading Roy Foster's book, Vivid Faces, I think I could have done more with that. Um, just how, what a bunch of eccentric dreamers they all were, really. And in many ways, great company, I'd imagine. Um, and I think possibly uh, I could have done a little bit more with that. I could have got Henry. Henry distrusted them. Henry just, Connolly was his man, and Henry distrusted them. So that I think for Henry to be Henry, he would still have to distrust them. But I think I might have had him getting that bit closer to them. There's a glorious conversation between Pierce and um, uh, Plunkett. Uh, in a quiet moment in the GPO where they were discussing which, which member of which European royal family they'd asked to be the king of the new republic, which 
go home and work that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they chose the youngest son of the Kaiser. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah. But I wasn't aware of that conversation either yeah, at the time. Yeah. yeah. And sure, Plunkett, uh, no, Plunkett's father, Count Plunkett, was up in Archbishop's house on the Monday. Was he? Yes, uh, to tell, to seek the Archbishop's approval for the rising and to tell the Archbishop, who was too ill to receive him, genuinely too ill, um, that he had, that Pl Count Plunkett had gone to the Pope in Rome to seek approval for the rising. Mm -hmm. So here was a kind of secular republic being proclaimed, but there mm -hmm. were, and, and which didn't want to be uh, labelled as a, home a Rome rule mm -hmm. outfit, and yet they were going to the Pope. I mean, you couldn't score a bigger own goal than yeah. that if you no. were trying to persuade <laughs> uh, the Ulster Unionists yeah. to come in under the Republic yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and cherish them equally and all that. But look, um, what did you teach history then at school? No, no. I thought uh, in the good years, English and with geography, and then in the bad years, depending on the timetabling, geography with a bit of English. Right. Yeah. And so, but so did 1916 come up at all into, through the through English through Yeats? I Yeats, it did. just yeah. as far as I recall, I gave up teaching in 1993, so it's um, it's it's nearly a quarter of a century now. But I think the only time it would have come up was in that Yeats poem, yeah. And do you remember anything of the way you're young because you were teaching boys, were you? Oh, boys and girls. Boy, I was in a community school. Community school, right? So, um, <clears throat> do you remember anything of the? way in which in the Northern Troubles were at their height at that point, weren't they? Right through the 80s. Right through the 80s, mm. okay. So did you remember anything of how that played out and whether it was re referenced back to 1916 at all? No. No. No, I don't recall anything I've got to... I could now, I'll wake up at five in the morning and say, ah, there was that time, but at the moment, no, I can't think of anything really. I do remember the hunger strikes, you know. It was very... Um, there was a big debate in the staff room about um, black armbands, whether they should be allowed or not. You know, and that was a very strange half year, I suppose. Mm. Uh, 81. 81, yeah. Yeah, very strange half year. And uh, discussions in the staff room as to whether the staff could wear black armbands and also whether students should be allowed to wear black armbands. I do remember a couple of staff members wanting to wear black armbands. I don't recall having a chat or a discussion with any of the students, particularly the senior ones, as to whether they wanted to. Possibly it's there, but I don't remember it. Right. Uh, and then the, the reading the proclamation today, it's a short document, it's 500, just short of 500 words. What's your estimate of it as a historical document? Well, I found, you know, for years, I read it sporadically. I suppose I read it again and again and again when I was writing the novel in 1985, 86, up to 88, 90, sorry, 95, 96, 90. Uh, I think it took three years to write, around about then anyway. And um, I always felt the opening sentence distanted me, you know, in the name of God and the dead generations. God, for a start, for me, was, you know, sorry, you know, I'm nothing, I'm an atheist or whatever. And I, I had to be for a long, long time a determined atheist. It was the only way to be an atheist in, in the country for a long, long time. Now nobody gives a toss. Uh, but then it was, it, was, it, was, it was trickier. And the dead generations, I just, I just felt, you know, as a document, I'd rather evoke the present day, so to speak. But there are elements of it. I think so I find as a, as a message, if you like, if I was involved in any way in writing some sort of a manifesto or putting together what it is that we want and why it is we're here and why we're prepared to die and expect others to die. To me now, looking at it this afternoon, the first few paragraphs don't get there, but later paragraphs do. And the one that really resonates with me now is the ownership of Ireland by the people of Ireland, because I don't, I don't see it as the four provinces or something like that, and I don't see it in any communistic kind of way, but I do see it um, Today, you know, if we hang around till half ten and walk down Grafton Street and watch homeless people going to bed, which is what they're doing, they're being fed. It's like a strange version of family life at that time of night where people are being fed soup, they're, being get, they're getting their supper, so to speak, and they're lying down and they're going to bed. And you have couples, you know, there's one couple I saw the last time I was walking down there in... Um, 
the Brown Thomas porch, so to speak. And they were, it was like they were just going to bed. The only thing missing was a roof, you know. And I come from um, Kilbarrick in north, on the north side. And if you start, it's on the coast, and if you start, and if you map it, you know, if you have a map of Dublin, you start shading in the corporation houses and the council houses. You know, you Kilbarrick, Coolock, Santry, Finglas West, Finglas East, you Ballymun. You keep on going around the ring and you're into the south side. And so much of Dublin was built by the state. And that today would be called social housing. And the word social housing is used, the term is used as if it's a problem. That only, you know, and all this land was bought by compulsory purchase orders. And this was during the dark times when there was no money in the country and we were supposed to be a, a medieval society almost. And yet this huge work was done to bring up the level, the standard of living. And it worked, you know. And now we can't build a couple of thousand houses. And we're told the land isn't available. Now I walked down regularly recently because I was at rehearsals at the top of Sheriff Street. And I came by, I live a, a walk away, half an hour walk. And I went by a different route each day just to entertain myself or educate myself somehow. And you go up Sheriff Street from Amiens Street and up along Upper Sheriff Street and you're walking by empty space in a lot of cases and apartments that have never been occupied or one or two are occupied. There's a sad looking bush on a balcony and a, you know, a bike strapped to a railing that hasn't moved in years. And all this land is it's there. And for the life of me, I'm not an economist, I'm not a politician, but for the life of me, I don't see why it can't be taken and built on today. You know, and that to me is the core. Today, as I was reading it this afternoon, that's what I sat up with, because it's occupying my mind a lot and creatively as well, trying to find a way to do a story, if you like, that will actually capture it today. And I was looking at that and thinking, that's, if I, you know, daft and all as it seems, 58-year-old man go marching out to war, but if I was to be involved in any sense at all in the equivalent, it would be for that reason. And you're saying of today now, Thomas Paine, who, in the Rights of Man, was a Republican tract, he, he made the point, and I, I think it's relevant to 1916, because for so long, we, 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 the, question, the question would have been asked on RTE so often in 1966, and you still hear it today, what would the men of 1916 make of Ireland today? That really is a sort of favorite question that's mm -hmm. talked about all the time. And I, I think what Payne says is most interesting. He says, the most insolent of tyrannies is the vanity and presumption of governing beyond the grave. And you know, yeah. Pierce, Pierce did this himself because he, you know, he's giving, laying down a tract and saying this is how it must be. The, this vanity that everybody has to make their own decisions in their own time, mm -hmm. and that that would be that that's the pain position, if you like. Mm -hmm. Would would you agree with that? I would, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if um, I don't care about Robert Emmett's stone headstone, I don't. I don't think we should worry about whether now is the time to. Put it, erect it or whatever it is, or put the put mark his death on it or yeah. whatever. Yeah. He, he had yeah. his day, but I'm talking about the present day. I do think if they if they were given flesh, a lot of the men and women involved around that time, not necessarily the ones who were in the GPO, but around that time, socially would feel a lot more comfortable today. You know, the gay women, for example, and uh, some of the men that you know, the, the more eccentric men would feel kind of I think more at home, certainly in Dublin. I'm only qualified to speak about Dublin because that's where I live. Um, but I do think it is, it's an irony that things have improved so much, yet we can't cope with this. We're not willing to cope with the homeless problem. Have we questions from the floor? I'm sure we have. And I would ask you to give, give us your name if you... If you if you would, so we can, and, and organization if you have one, um, so we can spot the spin, if any. Um, yes. Just of all the signatories, sorry, Adi, of all the signatories, which one would you most like to sit down and have a pint with? Um, well, I read, 
just to refresh myself, I read Ruth Dudley Edwards' book, where there's a chapter in each of them. And there were several of them I thought were terrific people, in a way. Full people, if you know what I mean. And there are some... Couldn't imagine myself having a pint with Porrick Pierce. Be a long, long <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> I think I'd make it 10 and whoop, the dart, and gone. Um, Connolly, a bit too strident, probably earnest as well. I'd admire him, but if you want for a laugh or whatever, probably um, Tomás McDonough. We'd have books in common for a start, I think. Yeah, he was Jane Austen was his great love. Mm. And um, yeah, so probably him. But there's a great spark about some of them, all right, yeah. I think um, Thomas Clark would probably be a bit of an angry old lad. What age was he when he... Oh, he's younger than me now, probably. Yeah, he was about 60, I think. Oh, he's a, a yeah, few yeah, years but ago. Yeah. But, uh, so he'd probably be the more contemporary. Suddenly it would be more appropriate for me to have a pint with him. But I'm not sure if I'd want to. Funny, isn't it? I've never thought of that before in terms of that kind of basic thing, having a pint. With, so I'd say uh, probably Tomás McDonough. And um, Eamon Kant was a sparky kind of man yeah. as well. The women loved him, didn't they? Yeah. As far as I know. And he, yeah, yeah. I had always written him off as a, 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 um, a bit of an Oscar Wilde type character. I, I found him quite funny in a way. I loved the notion of them having swords and stuff like that. I mean, Pierce cycled in from Rathvarnham, which is an awful, it's a, it's a journey and a half. And it was a, a hot day, I think, Easter, when he had the whole metal jacket and, you know, he was in full <laughs> regalia and he had a sword on a bike. <laughs> Big old black bike, you know. So um, I, don't, I, I doubt if he saw the comical side of that at all. But, um, yeah, but Plunkett, I think Plunkett had the spark as well. I think I'd probably underestimated him, but then when I started reading a little bit more about him, and when I thought about the background, the family, the, the mother was a, a piece of work, and the dad was too, I think. And um, so you got to, when I was reading about him and George, his brother, and I can't remember his sister's name. I began to admire them a bit, because they made, although they were well off financially, they kind of made a good life for themselves, if you like. They made, uh, they made a lot of themselves, so to speak. When the Archbishop was told that Count Plunkett was downstairs and wanted to see him, and it was announcing a rising, the Archbishop believed that this rising couldn't come to too much because he, he wouldn't have sent Plunkett out with an, on an altar boy's outing to organise it. He just didn't think he was an organiser. He said any rising with, with him in charge is not going to be up to very much and wouldn't be very dangerous. Um, I'm allowing myself a little freedom here, and a little of the novelist's uh, interpretation in saying that, but because I, mean, uh, I got the gist of this only yeah. from Monsignor Curran, who was his very informed secretary and was mm. going in to see him. Uh -huh. But the Archbishop was in real medical trouble at the time and was dead within four years. But, but so I'm allowing myself the luxury, which yeah. you have all the time, well, of making a little bit of, of extrapolating rather from what I know in my bones was his verdict on Plunkett. <laughs> so I made up the altar boys outing bit, just to let you know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, somebody. Yes, here. Thank you. Hi, my, my name is Liz Leonard. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you talked a lot about the men, but and you mentioned reading um, Vivid Faces, Roy Foster's book, mm. in which he um, quoted a lot from a lot of diaries from women mm. who are very strong activists. Yeah. I, I wonder which of the women were you impressed by? Um, I'm a bit worried about the word impressed. Do you know, it's, it's, um, but... Is, was, it, was it Elizabeth Farrell or O'Farrell? O'Farrell. O'Farrell. There was a lot going on there, I thought. That was a really interesting, if you like, the novelist in me thinking, that's a really interesting character. And part of the story of Henry is that when him and the other, and they were men, were marched to Richmond Barracks, which isn't there anymore, and they were being sorted out and the leaders were being taken away, Henry was photographed standing beside Eamon de Valera, who had just arrived, 
and the photograph is very famous now, and it's De Valera towering over two squaddies who were guarding him. But Henry's claim that he was right beside him, but that he got cut out of the picture. And that happened to Elizabeth O'Farrell, didn't it? It did. Yeah. 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 You know, so that in itself, there's an affinity there, I thought. I've never liked, and I suspect I wouldn't have liked Countess Markovich. I think partly because I read what I read about her years and years ago I would, when I was a student, I, I read about her through the eyes of Sean O'Casey, who detested her. And I was up for Sean. <laughs> yeah. Short-sighted, Ward Lasses, you know, north side of Dublin. He was, he was my man, so to speak. So um, I, I don't think, I'm, I, you know, I didn't, there's something about her. I, all, I often wondered why she was there. You know, but the, um, Elizabeth O'Farrell, I think, is the if one. If I was to write the book again, and I was thinking, having read what I've read recently, I would, you know, have Henry talking to her. Now, Henry has his own fictional woman in the GPO, if you like, the love of his life, Miss O'Shea, who's in Coming the Mon. So I made her up. But I was actually reading about, say, the women who were in Kilmainham Jail, the, the, the diehard women who wouldn't you know, surrender. Kilmainham Jail was full of these women. I think they were aged something like 14 up to 80, you know? And she ends up in there. But it was about these women that I was reading at the time. So I like to think some of the spirit of those women went into the creation of my fictional character. Am I answering your question? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Thanks. Um, as a cyclist, I suppose, as they say, I have to take exception to your remarks. Um, <laughs> I think what other, what other ecological and, and uh, form of transportation would you want to go to a rebellion on? Um, as for the sword, I think part of the thinking behind uh, other aspects of the rebellion and being stationed in major billion, bu buildings in, in the city was that they were going to be taken seriously as uh, an army mm -hmm. that was going to be uh, part of a new state and to make that case at the peace conference after the war. Um, so yeah. I think that was, you know, it's very much important. I can and see the it, logic of it, but to me, seeing a man walking by with a sword, he's an Egypt, you know. Yeah. To my eyes, he's an Egypt. And, but, you know, <laughs> if it, that, you know, we're in the early 21st century, but I'd imagine if I plonked myself 100 years ago, I'd still be saying, well, who does that gobshite think he is with the sword? Yeah, yeah. You know? Of course. I can see why. I can see the logic of it. Yeah. I do from certain eyes, <laughs> but we often, you know, in even serious occasions, we often see the, the, you know, oddness of certain things that happen, which, but it doesn't take away maybe from the underlying seriousness or purpose that was, you know, probably there. But the other, in relation to Elizabeth O'Farrell, um, my understanding is, in, uh, that's been recorded, is that she um, didn't want to be in the photograph, um, that oh. she um, made it clear that she was intending to fight on after the rising, after the, the um, um, you know, when they, when they decided to surrender. And also that she didn't want to be in the photograph, I think, because didn't want to take any, with her view and her decision, didn't want to take anything away from the importance of the surrender bec because this would be a very important photograph. Would it have been in her gift to say that she didn't want to be in the photograph? Well, I think it's... Who I, took if the it's photograph? I don't even know who took the photograph, or if there's only one photograph. But if it was, for example, a newspaper, she wouldn't be in a position to say, I don't want to be in that photograph. Yeah. It's no, almost but certainly I, a British photograph. I think she said in record, it's recorded, that, and she explained why she didn't yeah. want to be well, in the photograph. She might not have wanted to be, but Roddy's point was, it was, could it have been in her gift to be out of the photograph? I'm, I'm almost certain it has to be a British military photographer. I would imagine, yeah. You can't see who else it it's was. It's an interesting one. I, I've been in a few photographs I'd rather not be in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not in a position to get myself out of them. Yeah, it was stated as well clearly on television by, um, was it? by uh, the poet Theo Dorgan. Ah, I wouldn't mind Theo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never listened to a poet.
Yeah. Well, she could have. Yeah. But you see, if you start looking at photographs like that and analysing them, and you get stray bits of evidence. Now, she might have got cut out of the reproduction years later of many versions of the photograph, because as you say, the photograph is a very well-known mm. sort of surrender photograph. And she might well have been in a position years later not to have been included, because even before you had Photoshop and all this sort of clever stuff that people can now do, um, she, might, she might have been lost in the photograph for her own reasons. But that, sorry? Well, it won't be me. It'd be a slim, <laughs> it would be a slim enough volume I now. Surrender. That is a very discreet and, and small point. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you one thing that struck me about the famous sort of archive of photographs, which RTE um, now owns. That's the Cashman photographs yeah. of the, this whole period. I reckon that, and I've looked at every one of them. There are about 500 in it. I've looked at them a number of times, and I've looked at them very, very quickly. But then I've looked at many of them more slowly. But I think there's probably only one photograph in the whole collection where Cashman didn't know he was going to, to take that photograph, what, an hour before he took it. it was, there's only one news photograph in it. And that's the killing in Talbot Street. You probably know it. The, the, the very, very action photograph. And mm. I don't even know how his, he had a camera good enough mm -hmm. to capture it. Mm -hmm. But I always see Cashman putting the, the tripod up and putting the big yeah. thing behind him. And really a lot, he was doing, he was a professional photographer, had to earn his money, and was taking photographs which were being used by the Daily Mail and used by the Irish Independent, mm -hmm. using, being used by anybody who would buy them. But the question you have to ask of any historical document is, why is this here? And that's true for a photograph. Why is it here? Who took it? For what purpose? Who was the intended audience? Who paid the bill? Who paid the photographer? If you, start, if you ask all those questions, mm -hmm. and then you've got to use supposition much of the time, um, because who else could have taken the photograph? And that, that's what I've only used by saying it has to be a British military photographer. Nobody else was around. Uh, there were very few news photographs of that period. Yeah. If you look at, say, a bread van being searched by British soldiers at a barricade in the, in the War of Independence, that, that's almost certainly set up. Cashman needed to make his, his, get his photographs for that day, and he would have participated entirely properly, but he wanted a photograph, so he would have now, that what, where it becomes unethical, perhaps, is if the British soldiers start doing a search, especially for him, because he needs a photograph. Mm -hmm. that's the, then you're in trouble. You're, but yeah. otherwise, that's the way news yeah. works. Yes? I think this, it was published in, I read somewhere in the summer, it was published in the Daily Express, I think. And they thought it looked odd, so they cropped the Lulu today. It would have been probably painted out or whatever they did. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They just said, oh, that's very plausible, I think. Yeah, yeah very plausible. Yeah, and in, in other words, an innocent explanation of, yes. Everybody can use the mic because we're recording for podcasting, and it won't pick up. Um, Roddy, you said um, so. You kind of indicated that um, the homelessness is uh, the thing that you might uh, raise arms for, or maybe you would, if I rephrase that, um, say that that's where we failed the promise of the proclamation. Would it's where I suppose now I'm kind of, in a way I'm limited to what I see yeah. as a citizen. And it's just a combination of reasons over the last month and a half, two months, that have brought me to different places in the city. And when I was, the last time when I, I happened to be walking down Grafton Street at that particular time, I was coming out of the Gaiety Theatre. I'd been to a rehearsal for a, a, a production I was involved in. And that's why I was walking down Grafton. And I came out quite elated because it was just a wonderful experience. And by the time I got to the bottom of the street, it was gone, you know, it was gone. And I, I think in a way, I don't want to over-dramatise, but I suppose I'm quite happy living in this country quite happy being Irish, um, but I'm ashamed of that. And I know, and 
you know, I've been trying to figure out how do, you, how do I voice that. And it's not a letter to the paper, and it's not a march, and it's not, you know, it, it's not a way. I, I, there's a skill that I have, and I, I'm trying to figure out, and I think I have figured it out, but I won't talk about it, about how to use that skill to tell a story. That's what I do. I tell stories. And that's what I feel urgent, you know, urgency about. Mm. Um, it just seems so doable. There are 2,000 homeless kids in the city, which is just wrong. But it's not 20,000 homeless kids. You know, and, and again, going back to, you know, the estate crumbling that was built and Brendan Bean went out there and, you know, he missed the inner city, but those houses are still there and they're good houses. And they were built by the state, you know, the whole estate. And now you hear politicians on the radio talking about 18 houses here and again that stigma of social housing as if it's heroin addicts you know as if it's you know but we're talking about children we're talking about there was I'm sure you all heard the woman on the radio and heard, read the story the woman whose, whose family was in the car because she couldn't find a hotel room and she was waiting long into the night before they got a room for one night and trying to get your kids to school the following morning. And when, when, it's, when you hear that, and when it's broken down into the routine, it's like your own routine interrupted, you know? Because can, we can all visualize that routine of getting the kids up, getting them into the car if, they, you know, if the school is far away, all this sort of stuff. It becomes, the, it becomes the fabric of your life in many ways. And when it stops, you miss it. And you start looking back quite fondly about it. And you forget about the rain and the hell and the, you know. But when you just, Try to imagine that woman and her husband. He had a job. They just can't afford the rent. And, you know, it seems to be uncontrollable. You can't interfere with that. It just seems awful, really awful, that as a society, in a relatively wealthy society, we can't sort this out. Mm -hmm. It just seems terrible. I was going to... Um I was going to ask if there's something, uh, the opposite, something that we could look at in the proclamation that we did live up to. I think we're doing okay. I'd need to have another gawk at it to think, but I think we're doing all right, really. You know, I think we're, we're awful people for hammering ourselves. We, we, you, know, there were, you know, 15 years ago, we were the best country in the world. Everybody loved us. Everybody loves the Irish. We're wonderful. We're great. The standard of living is higher than it is in Britain. You know, then the economy collapsed. We're terrible people. We're children. We're fattest people in Europe. You know, we're binge drinkers. Uh, all this sort of stuff. We're terrible. We're awful people. You know, we neglect everybody. You know, we kill our old people. And um, I think it's leveled down a bit now. I think we're calmed down a little bit. But I think generally the quality of life here is relatively good. And again, we can all think, well, what about, what about? You know, the exceptions are there and they're, they're in numbers. But I think we do relatively well. We're, do, we're doing okay. And um, a, a lot of things that I thought would never happen in my lifetime, you know, for example, gay marriage. It's just... And the enthusiasm for it. And the by plebiscite, yeah. By Decided yeah. by plebiscite. By yeah. plebiscite. And the, how I think it was the first time where young people took over the country, really. Uh, certainly my own children, who are adults and can vote. It was the first time where they were talking enthusiastically about the right to vote. And we've all heard stories about people coming home. But I think a lot of them basically dragged their parents and grandparents into the opinion that this was a good thing. You know? And I was at an event at the Abbey. It's nothing whatsoever to do with 1916, I suppose, but it's there. And um, it was, you know, an event for, you know, uh, encouraging a yes vote. And I noticed that how the younger men and women were so, if you like, confident in their bodies and in how they presented themselves in terms of the colours they wore and how they would walk, for example, and just carry themselves. And there were a group of men closer to my own age, of five or six men, who sang. It was a, a, a collection of songs that one of them had composed about being a gay man in, in, a, in Ireland. And I think it had been done about 15 years beforehand. And they were a bit younger than me, but not a lot younger than me. And I think they probably would have grown up in the same conditions. And it was harder to discern. I know we can't say gay men look like this and you know, heterosexual men look like that. But they more or less kind of were dressed the same as myself. And there was a slight little concession to colour. 
but you really had to look carefully. And I just felt those men went through their whole lives, in a way, hiding in that way, hiding. And I felt a huge, I went right back to my childhood and kids being bullied in the schoolyard and kids being battered by Christian brothers, unmercifully battered by Christian brothers. And I remember that relief, feeling the relief that it, it's not me. Do you remember when, a, when, a, when a, a kid was being picked on in the classroom? You know, and I, I know that it's a common feeling because I've spoken about it with other people, that you just, at one level, you're relieved that it's not you, and that actually in the long term makes you feel even worse because you didn't do anything about it. Because actually, you know, it, practically speaking, if you had, you'd be hammered too. So I just um, felt really quite uh, privileged to witness it, but at the same time, it did make me feel uncomfortable about decades of living, so to speak. And I think that vote was probably the biggest political event in my life. And I think to a degree, it was a lot of people saying, we're sorry, you know? And I never imagined anything like that would ever happen in my life, you know? I think the first big referendum in my life was, was the first abortion referendum. And that seemed to be Ireland at the time. Um, crazy, you know, crazy. And I thought, this is the country I live in. You know, and you kind of put on the blinkers and get on with your life, but I don't think we have to wear... The, well, the blinkers are more like that now, if you like, instead of like that. That's my point of view. I can't remember the question now, but... Uh, we, uh, no, I think you answered it. It's something yeah. that we could say we did live up to cherishing the children. We did, um, we did realise so, the yeah. ideals. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. so. And I think um, huge, huge event, huge, huge, huge event. And um, yeah, as I said, the most, the, uh, the, the, the biggest political, social, cultural shift, acceptance, I think, has been that. And it's only a year ago. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of um, 2016 and the centenary of the 1916 Rising, what's your estimate of how, in public discourse, this has now been debated, the, the event, the Rising itself, the plurality of views about it, mm. uh, respect for views other than the conventional view and so on? I, I think I enjoyed it. In, you know, I enjoyed it intellectually, I enjoyed it musically, I enjoyed an awful lot of what was being done. I loved, as I said, in the new books, the complications in the story, the presentation of the people as being human and flawed, you know, daft, but admirable at the same time, you know. Um, so I really, I, I thought... You know, obviously we could pick some things that were strange and other things that were terrific. And there was a debate on primetime in the GPO that really caught me on the hop. I thought it was brilliant. And I never thought I'd agree with Michael McDowell about anything. <laughs> and I found myself a good man, you know. <laughs> I was up for him. I'd go fight with Michael, you know. But um, I, I thought that was a terrific yeah. thing. And it caught me on the hop. You kind of... Hedging me bets, I'll see what's on prime time, or if, not, if there's not anything on, I'll watch Game of Thrones, you know? But I, I watched prime time that and night. And Eamon O'Keefe was on that as well, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. And I found, yeah, yeah they were both Eamon grandsons of very important figures in 1916. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And both of them are very engaged, by the way, in, in intellectually. I thought, yeah, what was great about that, they weren't just there because they were the grandsons. Yeah, yeah. They knew their stuff, they knew their so stuff, to speak. Yeah. And they had actually worked it out, you know, so it was great. There was great intellectual vigour there, I thought, which again surprised me. And I, I don't mean that as an insult to the two mm. men, mm. Uh, by, by any means, because they're uh, clearly very intelligent men, but I just thought Eamon O'Keefe, the party line, you know, and it just that told the party line, but it wasn't. It was actually well thought out. I thought it was really, that, that was excellent. I thought that yeah. was really yeah. terrific. But yeah. I did enjoy even wandering around Dublin in, in, in you know, that weekend. Yeah. I thought it was terrific people in their nurses' costumes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was, yeah. it was very, it was really kind of, it was, it was um, quite right, I think, to celebrate the thing. Yeah. Um, and also there, the earlier point that was being made about the bicycle and the sword and all that, O'Casey oh, was the first to spot all of that, and he, he brought out the sword and saw the egetry in it, didn't he? In Plough on the Stars, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I thought brilliantly. Yeah. yeah, and that was disowned at the time. 
The reaction to it was very strong, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, very strong. And there was all the Hannah Sheehy Skeffingtons and the UCD intellectuals who were down shouting and booing and screaming about yeah. it, about the men of 1916 are being pilloried. And so there was yeah. no space for O'Casey to really voice that at the time. But they clearly failed because we get to see that play every couple of years. They, well, they, in the long run, they failed, but yeah, on, on the, the night, in the short on, term, on, yeah. Look yeah. at Holloway's diaries about it. He, Holloway yeah. went to the mall. He went to, yeah. he went to the, all the rehearsals, and then he went to every night of the first yeah. six or seven nights. Yeah. It's all up in 220 diaries up in the manuscripts room. You're talking to somebody who tried to go through some home? of them. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I suppose on the other hand. I mean, I, you know, I think there's a bit in the most writers, there's a bit of us would like to have, you know, to, re, to have a reaction like that in a way. And uh, because I think in a way, if you get people shouting their objections, you've done a good job. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. And I've been lucky and I've had a few moments like that with, say, for example, the drama family and the reaction to that. I just, it was very unsettling in a way. I got death threats and all sorts of things. But at the same time, I did feel I must have done something right. You know, so I'd, I'd imagine Casey, O'Casey, who'd, you know, there must have been a huge satisfaction as well, because he didn't have much time for these people anyway. Yeah, well, that's right. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you, I think you share with O'Casey uh, is the ear for dialogue, which is at the heart of a lot of your writing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, O'Casey's yeah. ear for dialogue, I, I discovered this. I kind of knew, I knew it. I was told it. it was, but... There, is, there are recordings by John O'Donovan, who was an RTE broadcaster and himself an Abbey playwright, and he did Dear Sir or Madam, the letters thing. And he went down probably in the 1960s to where O'Casey lived and spoke to a lot of people there. And in their syntax, grammar, mm. intonation, accent, voice, vocabulary, they are straight on off the stage. Mm. The people, he, and he was speaking to them 50 years later. Yeah. But uh, it's absolutely uncanny. And one of the women says, oh, he just left us. Uh, oh, Casey, he just left us. And what she meant was he'd gone up to live in Eccles Street, <laughs> which was about three quarters of a mile away. Yeah. It was less than half a mile away. But, but he had left the parish. Yeah. Because he, he was down there on, on the kind of wrong side of the tracks, yeah. down near Sheriff Street. Yeah. I don't know the exact address. But... Um, but her line was that he had left us, yeah. abandoned them yeah. to go up and write, because he, he smuggled himself into some... He was in Mountjoy Square for a bit as well. He, mm. he, I think he knocked on the door and stayed for three months <laughs> w- with the pal who allowed him to, uh, to stay by. Yeah. Anyway, but he has this ear. You, you couldn't listen to... And it is, it is 40 years later that these people were being recorded after mm-hmm. O'Casey wrote. Mm-hmm. But it was, it's uncanny how many of them... So there was kind of... He just had to capture that. Yeah. It's still there, I think. It's yeah. still there. I think you take some words out and you put some words in and you add a few likes. And depending on the proportions, young women, more likes, older men, far less likes, <laughs> you know. But it's still there. That rhythm is still there, I think, you know. Yeah. 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 Any final questions? Yes, gentlemen down there. Been inside the GPO or looting, maybe? No, I was well reared, so I wouldn't have been looting. (laughs) I'd have been encouraging people to put the stuff back. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'd have been in the GPO. You know? Both my grandfathers were involved, as they say. It's a great verb. But they weren't in the GPO. Neither of them. One of them was at Fairy House Races that day. (laughs) And the other was, I think, I had an uncle, a great uncle, Robert Brennan. And he was involved, and his wife, Una Brennan, Una Bulger, my mother's a Bulger, were in uh, Enniscorty, and they were involved. She raised the flag. She was one of the three women in Enniscorty who raised the tricolour. And uh, so he was there. And my... My other grandfather would have been very young, uh, but he was in Enniscorthy somewhere, but I've never seen anything written about him being involved, so to speak, that particular time. He did time in Mount Joy. There are letters my mother has of him write, written from Mount Joy. But, uh, so they were involved. But I don't think I would have been in the GPO. 
But I think sometimes I've read Ernie O'Malley's work, and I think perhaps it would have been a little bit like Ernie O'Malley, watching what was going on and being outraged about, say, the executions and the long-drawn way that they were done. And it converted a lot of people, converted the country, really, I suppose, or this part of the country. So I, I, I don't think I'd have been immune to it in any sense, but I don't think I'd have been involved initially. And Ernie O'Malley's testimony is remarkable, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, including how he got started in it, because he yeah, was the, the outside. On another man's wounds, is it, just yeah. ma it's, it is a masterpiece. Masterpiece, no yeah. And yeah. he collected an awful lot of work, uh, other people's testimonies. Yeah. You know, fantastic, really fantastic. Yeah. And now, now being published by Mercier, these men will talk to me. Yeah. And he has the Galway interviews, and he has the Clare interviews, and so on. Yeah. Um, because his papers are in UCD and are formidable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ask again, do you ever get home? <laughs> <laughs> I ask, my, ask my wife. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you very much, Roddy. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I look at it? How do I get into it? Oh. <laughs> uh, oh yes, I just yeah. I'm always nervous of these things. Oh look. No, it's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. I just photoshopped myself. <laughs> oh sorry. It's a pizza. <laughs> I'll take it out and show you. Funny, I'm, I'm going to now give you a picture of myself. Uh, there you go. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Thank you.